Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Buck Habrichter, Managing Editor of the War Room. Every U.S. student in the resident course at the U.S. Army War College has to complete a strategic research project as a requirement of the master's degree they are awarded upon graduation. Students typically do that as an individual effort, but a portion of the student body participates in integrated research projects, or IRPs. Typically broader in scope, the IRP combines the works of multiple students in a single larger document that capitalizes on the breadth of experience of the entire research team. A little over two years ago, we sat down with the students and advisors of integrated research project number six. Their task was to examine leadership development requirements in the multi-domain operations environment in the year 2040. Due to our hardware malfunction, we thought we had lost the recordings of these conversations, but just recently we were able to recover those files. Despite a couple of mildly dated references, we felt that this topic was important enough and of interest to our listeners that we needed to post this three-part series. In the studio with me for this first episode is Colonel Chance Garay, Colonel Tim Monroe, and Lieutenant Colonel Retired Greg Hillebrand. A graduate of the AY-19 resident class at the U.S. Army War College, Colonel Garay earned his commission through the Air Force ROTC program at North Dakota State University in 1997. He has served in staff and operational command positions both in garrison and deployed throughout the communications and cyberspace career field. He is currently the commander of the 81st Training Group at Keesler Air Force Base, Mississippi. Colonel Tim Monroe, also a graduate of the AY-19 resident class at the U.S. Army War College, received his commission as a distinguished graduate from the Air Force ROTC program at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Daytona Beach, Florida. A graduate of the Euro-NATO Joint Jet Pilot Training Program, his assignments include flying operations in the F-15C and MQ-9A in support of Operations Noble Eagle and Enduring Freedom. He served as Air Combat Command's Persistent Attack and Reconnaissance Division Chief prior to his current assignment as the Commander, 25th Attack Group, Shaw Air Force Base, South Carolina. Lieutenant Colonel Retired Greg Hillebrand is an Assistant Professor at the Center for Strategic Leadership at the U.S. Army War College. He previously served as a Military Analyst in Space and Cyberspace, as well as a faculty member in the Department of Military Strategy, Planning, and Operations. His Air Force career was primarily focused in the space and missile operations community. He is the primary advisor for the IRP. Gentlemen, welcome to the studio. Thank Thanks. You. Good morning. Thank you. So I understand uh, your IRP number six specifically was looking at leadership development requirements in the MDO in the out year of 2040. What else can you tell us about that, Greg? The Army continuously examines how to prepare officers and soldiers to operate successfully in the environment, to win the nation's wars. West Point in the 1800s, soldiers learned about sword fighting. They learned about how much a mule ate and how far a mule could travel in a day. We don't teach those things at West Point anymore. We teach other things. We're teaching space. We're teaching cyber. The Army continually tries to ensure that it's preparing soldiers and officers to be as successful as possible in warfare. Our study was examining the world of 2040, 
will be significantly different from today. We'll, we'll examine that. And multi-domain operations, a way to address these changes. The Army, the military, continually needs to change in order to ensure we're successful. This study is a small part of a much bigger study to examine how to prepare officers and soldiers to be successful in the future. Okay. So it's easy to say 2040 is going to be different. What is it that's going to be different about it that's going to impact this that you guys study today? So in the project, we kind of broke it up into three different areas. I looked at the 2040 portion. Um, we have the MDO, multi-domain operation portion, and then we have the, some of the leadership development traits. So I looked at the future, the 2040 portion of it. Um, of course, preparing for the future is, I mean, we, nobody has a crystal ball. So um, it, it's it's kind of using certain trends that uh, that we could find that help describe the future. The Joint Staff released a document called the Joe 2035, which takes multiple sources um, and secure, uh, of different environments and tries to lay out a projection. Just for our listeners that may not be familiar, the Joe stands for what? Joint Operating Environment, okay. 2035. Um, it includes all kinds of sources, so, uh, predict predictive sources from the Army, Navy, Marines. It also looked at uh, sources from other countries. Uh, France produced one, Australia, Germany. And the UK actually has been looking at future trends for quite a while in, in, a, in a very rich document, a strategic trend document that goes out to the year 2050. Um, so uh, from, from all these documents, there's kind of three big areas that we're going to see that are going to be different uh, in the future. The human environment, um, specifically populations, uh, there's going to be technology advancements. Of course, everybody's walking around with a phone today, but it's going to it's going to continue on in the future, and that's going to lead to kind of persistent and increasing dynamic threats. And that's kind of how we lead into the MDO portion of uh, of our project, where all these things are going to be uh, working together at the same time, rather than just fights on the in the sea domain, the land domain. We're now we got to put all of them together for threats uh, all together at the same time. Okay, so you know, obviously, looking at a twenty-year span and what could possibly change in that time frame is a little bit more than we have time to discuss today in a one single podcast. Um, what are, What are some very specific examples of some of the significant environment changes you're going to look at? So, population growth—that's um, that's a big one. Uh, India, for example, uh, is going to surpass uh, the pop, uh, population of China very shortly. Um, Nigeria will overtake the U.S., and Nigeria uh, will be the third most populous uh, country in the world. So birth rates in Africa are about 5.5, uh, um, in India, 2.3, China, 1.6. But you can see Africa, for example, is going to be exploding, and India just in a few years is going is to overtake China. So the population uh, boom is, is, will be significant, and it will kind of change the dynamics a little bit. Um, so that's going to mean that urban environments um, are going to also be a challenge. Conflicts, uh, were, because there's going to be more people living in the cities because of these huge population booms and people kind of uh, finding ways to live, conflicts are likely to involve major cities. Um, and these major cities, specifically in developing uh, countries, are going to have fragile infrastructures. And that's going to make things challenging for, for future leaders having to deal with, okay, now I have the, the possibility of lots of collateral damage, if you will, or, or civilian casualties because of these large 
uh, populations from urbanization. We've already seen migration being a huge uh, issue in Europe from people trying to migrate from Africa to Europe. So with Nigeria exploding, with the continent of Africa exploding from, you know, with population, those fears are going to continue to be exacerbated in the future. So we're going to see the continuing concern from Europe worrying about migration from, uh, from, uh, from Africa. So cross-cultural awareness across the board from India, Africa, that's going to be something that we're going to have to continue to, to wrestle with in the future. And it's just going to shift, we think, to, to Africa, India, those areas. So if I can jump in, I think one of the interesting things that I took away from Colonel Gray's study on this is seeing how these things are tied together. Climate change uh, is something that future military leaders will have to wrestle with. And if we kind of build on what he just mentioned about the continent of Africa and geostrategic challenges that it will face and have to wrestle with, you can kind of put this into a scenario that from a military context, we can use to help do some predictive thinking and analysis on the types of skills a a leader needs to have, but the types of investments and capabilities that we need to have in our warfighting portfolio. So if we build on what he just mentioned there, climate change, if we have rising tides and a vast portion of the global population lives within a very near distance to a major water feature, if those populations all of a sudden have to start moving and in the context of the African continent across already very porous borders with very little developed infrastructure, very little security structure, that becomes a very complex situation, not just for those countries and the interplay between them, but that if the U.S. military or our allies and partners were pulled into a conflict in that particular space, it poses a number of challenges from us across all of the domains. How do we reach that space? How do we project power in that space? How do we handle the second and third order effects of what that environment looks like? And then we bring that back to this question that we're wrestling with is, how do we prepare leaders to not just think about it, but to intentionally start to develop themselves so that they're ready to handle those challenges if and when they should arise? So you're proposing basically a whole new skill set for leaders there. Faced with these challenges in uh, in twenty forty, by the time they get there. Well, so that's I think that's the interesting debate that the team has had. It fundamentally comes down to this question of how we perceive change between now and then. Do we expect there to be revolutionary change in the environment such that we have to completely rethink the skill sets that military leaders have today, vice what they need in the future, or is your perspective such that there has always been change? Uh, you know, Greg started with a, a reference on how we trained students at West Point 100 years ago. Well, there have been a number of significant geostrategic things that have happened every decade in the 100 years since World War I ended. I would personally contend that um, there will be sort of an evolutionary change. Now, in that evolutionary change, some of those things will have significant uh, impact to how we fight, how we project power, Uh, but we will find a way to train and adapt leaders, soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines 
in order to succeed in whatever those particular environments are. But that's been an interesting topic of conversation, a little bit of friction in the team here. Do we need to completely wipe the plate clean and start fresh with how we train people? Or are we doing it right and we just need to continue to build and strive for new competencies and new capabilities? So as we we have examined this, one of the models that kind of rose up was was really two sides. One, leadership is leadership. Soldiers are soldiers. All of that is eternal, from, from the first soldier that picked up a sword to the soldier of 2040. Another model we looked at was radios and tanks. Tanks in World War II had a radio operator. The radio was very complex. You needed a special soldier, specially trained, had to have a lot of knowledge in order to operate that high-tech piece of equipment. Today, tanks don't have radio operators because the crew members are all a little bit smarter and the radio, or whatever the communication system is, is much, much smarter. It's much easier to use. So using that sort of model, soldiers, people, military, have to gain a little bit of knowledge, but also technology will make systems smarter and easier to use. So how do we balance that? What are the things that we need to train and educate to ensure that our warfighters understand? And what are the technologies that we need to move along so we can keep pace with that? So one of the, the trending technologies, and, and I'm a, a communications guy by trade, um, so dealing with the massive amount of information, I think that's, that's one of the things that future leaders are going to have to contend with. And the trending technologies now is artificial intelligence, right? And so, you know, why do we need artificial intelligence? Is, is it overhyped? Something to consider, as I, as I was doing some of my research, Seagate, who's a popular hard drive manufacturer, has some data about, they call it the global data sphere. And that's how much uh, information we have out there right now. And they have some interesting figures. They say the, the global data sphere right now is 33 zettabytes. That's 33 trillion gigabytes of data. By 2025, um, it's expected to be five times larger than that. So you can imagine by 2040 the amount of data that that that's going to be out there. Some some things that are even interest that are even more interesting about it is using current technology we will actually run out of the raw material to store that amount of data. Um, it just won't exist. So they have to they're working on new technologies to even store that data. But what do we do with all that data as future leaders? Um, and that's where artificial intelligence really comes in, is to be able to kind of synthesize that data um, and present it to the warfighter in some kind of useful fashion. And so that's, I think, a major thing that we're going to have to contend with um, in the future. I mean, everybody right now has a, has a smartphone and is using some basic types of uh, artificial intelligence with uh, whether it be Alexa or Google or, you know, pick a, pick a, a popular tool. Um, but in the future, we're going to have to rely on some of that uh, technology to help synthesize this information. And maybe something, a, a challenge for future leaders is to, to identify, be able to, number one, ask the right questions, um, and two, kind of ask some, hey, is this, is this data valid? Alexa, where did you get that data from? How did you come up with that decision? So to be able to st continue to think critically, but, but immerse yourself in the technology and be able to ask, hey, I'm getting a, a suggestion to do this type of thing. Um, does that make sense or not? 
So, and that's where the human leader development will have to continue in the future. So Chance posed this interesting question before we came into the studio today, and it was going back to his point of what is our relationship with technology? And there's a school of thought that thinks if you t- sort of, you take this evolutionary approach, right? So I'm a, I'm a Gen X guy. I'm a, what I think many would describe as a digital immigrant. When I compare my tech experience to that of my children, it is, it's just significantly different because things like the smartphone were invented well into my adulthood. So I have a different relationship. And so one of the ideas that Chance proposed was in the future, will you live with technology or will you live in technology? And it's sort of a reflection of how will you view and perceive your relationship with the synthetic environment? Is it something that you use to enable what you do or is it something that you rely implicitly on in order to accomplish daily activities and in our context, our ability to fight wars for our nation? This provided a significant challenge to the team. We're looking at Africa, population exploding, India, population exploding, resource uh, limitations. The places where we may fight may be places that are not technologically advanced. We are also facing a future with a perhaps resurgent Russia and China, which are highly technologically advanced. This puts our soldiers, our, our military, in a situation where we need to have people that are extremely technologically advanced and able to use AI to achieve a mission, fighter planes, space operations, things like that. And we may also, at the same time, be facing challenges in a place like Africa, which may have very, very limited technology. So what does the military focus on? There's only so much training and education time. Can you have soldiers who exceed in a highly technological, multi-domain operation, integrating space and cyber and aircraft and ships and, and things we can't even comprehend yet, and also in a situation that may be like Afghanistan, where an enemy is using just regular chemically-powered rifles? How how do we face that sort of challenge? So you, you've each brought up MDO a couple of times here, multi-domain operation. It's probably a good time to, to talk about that a little bit in depth. Do the services all view MDO in the same manner? Well, so that's actually the fundamental question that I went into my research with is, what is it? And, you know, in the context of military reflection, what's some of the history of our senior leaders, strategic leaders, and the guidance they have provided us to think about it. And then let's look at the individual services and see how they think about multi-domain operations. And then ultimately, as an output of the uh, IRP, let's see if we can't come up with some common tenets that leaders or the general public can uh, understand and conceptualize about multi-domain operations. So let me start at the top there in terms of strategic guidance. One of the interesting things is in terms of the first available reference to multi-domain operations that I was able to track down came from a speech that was provided by Undersecretary Bob Work here at the Army War College in 2015. And its use subsequently began to increase in quantity once the national military strategy, national defense strategy were published a few months after the speech that he provided at a strategy conference. 
if you reference our national security strategy, national defense strategy, and current national military strategy, they all reference one of two things, either multi-domain operations or all-domain operations. And there are some nuanced differences between the two. Uh, but the important thing to understand is that our nation and its senior most leaders understand that our ability to provide security for the United States of America rests on our ability to not only understand what a domain is, but to be able to access it and to be able to pursue our country's interests in and through those domains. So in the context of well, what is multi-domain operations, there are a couple of things that I would offer with respect to what I discovered looking at how the services view MDO. They have all written their own documents on it, right? So all the services have something, either a future operating concept. While we were here at the Army War College for academic year 2019, the Army published a multi-domain operations pamphlet, which was actually very foundational to a lot of our research and a lot of our findings. But these are some common ones that I, I've come up with, some themes, because again, the services look at MDO through their own lenses, right? So if I am a Marine, I look through the lens of the competencies that have been born and built into me as a Marine. As a, Personally, as an Air Force officer, I look at multi-domain operations through my competencies as an airman and the things that I know that my service has been entrusted and expected to uh, perform. So these are the four key tenets that I came up with. The first is for a general consuming audience, multi-domain operations is a confluence of spectrums. What does that mean? Well, it means that there are a lot of different threat and spectrums that we have to deal with in the military. I'll give you just a few. So threat is the first one that I just mentioned to you. So you have low-end capabilities and you have exquisite high-end capabilities that I would contend the United States possesses and some of our peer and near-peer competitors like China and Russia. Uh, you also have a spectrum of conflict. On one end, you have cooperation, which we do with allies and partners that kind of scales up to the middle, which is where we compete. And then once you cross the threshold, now we're going to get into armed conflict. We have speed, we have technology. And in each of those spectrums, you have low end capabilities, high end capabilities, you move slowly, you move quickly. And we're at a point in multi-domain operations where as a world power, the United States has to maintain awareness across all of those. So this confluence of spectrums means I can't turn a blind eye to something because it's inconvenient to me, because that low-end threat, that one individual who's in acting on their own, could actually have strategic consequence to our country. But I'm also responsible for maintaining very clear-eyed perspective on the high-end capability. So that's the first tenet. The second tenet in multi-domain operations, it will require persistent sensing and contextualization. So what does that mean? In order for us to succeed in an environment such as what Greg just described about the low-end capabilities vice the high-end capabilities, I have to be able to sense and understand changes in the environment. So we go back to what Chance had mentioned a few minutes ago about the vast quantities of data that are being collected. Well, how do you make sense of all of that? So we're going to have to work with, and this gets to the third point here in just a moment, technological solutions to help me understand changes in the environment so that I can most effectively use the tools and the portfolio that I have available to project war, war fighting capabilities. So the third point very quickly, 
Um, multi-domain operations will leverage technology to enable the cognitive and physical realms. Well, what does that mean? I need a piece of equipment that's going to help me fly faster and further. That's going to need to be part of our portfolio. Some of the more intricate ones that we looked at were what are the types of tools that I will need, such as what Chance mentioned, to help me understand and interpret what is in data? How do I use that as a senior leader, as a strategic leader? How do I develop trust? How do I even develop those capabilities? If we say, what do I need artificial intelligence to do something for me. Okay, well, what do you want it to do? Help me understand those things so that I can better make you as a senior leader more effective in how you're going to lead warfighting capabilities. And then the fourth one very quickly is the multi-domain operations rise and fall on access, movement, and maneuver. I think it's fair to say that a domain is a competitive environment. As much as we want to be in there and be able to uh, maneuver in it to project our nation's will, the enemy wants to do the same thing. So our ability to successfully do that in MDO will hinge on our ability to access it, then maneuver within it uh, to the degree that we need to in order to achieve our nation's objectives. All of these things that have existed since to one extent or another, warfare has existed. They are evolutionary, some are revolutionary, the technology, the speed, the scope. But two elements do kind of rise up out of MDO. The first is the, the confluence of domains. No longer will it be acceptable to say, well, this is your time, infantry, this is your time, airplanes, this is your time, artillery. It has to go beyond integration. Everything will be happening simultaneously, and it will be commanders and soldiers' jobs to to go beyond integration and be able to bring every element of national power, not always just the M, the military part, but the diplomatic information and economic as well. And the second part of this that, again, has almost always existed since we've had armies is the competition phase. We tend to overlook this, um, but things like in the cyber world right now, enemies, people who are not necessarily our friends are doing cyber operations against the United States. Is that warfare? That, that's that's probably a podcast for another day, but it is an activity, and it's an activity that the military is involved with, generally thought of as not war, but something that's also not peace. So there's this range of things are happening, kind of in a certain sense like the Cold War. Things were happening, but we weren't in a big war with Russia and China, yet things were still happening, all kinds of things, military, diplomatic information, economic we are trying to refocus on this competition phase with environmental change and natural disasters and populations and, and uh, urbanization. More of the military's time may be focused on that to avoid the big war that would be part of the warfare phase. So competition and bringing everything together are two of the main elements of multi-domain operations. Now, if I can just offer one more thing. So I appreciate Greg bringing that, that up because that was another point of, you know, sort of tension in the group is the, the military likes to use this term integration a lot. You know, one of the documents that we used in the um, report was the joint concept for integrated campaigning. But in, in my mind, when I think integrated, I think, as Greg referred to, there's a piece that I'm responsible for as an airman, and then my army counterpart then comes in immediately after that at this very succinct point in time, and now he has an, a unique capability that he has to pick up on and 
and so on and so forth, right? So I'm like, I'm putting these complex puzzle pieces together, which in and of itself is very laborious to do. What we believe is that in multi-domain operations, this key word is, is coherence, that we need to be able to fluidly adjust, uh, not just in the build up to uh, an execution of a war fighting plan, but that in the case that if a domain is contested and I'm denied access to it for a period of time, the tenants of the Army's mission command very much come into play here, that those lower level units are able to fluidly be able to continue to operate even though they've been disconnected or disaggregated, as some of our leaders would say, from the rest of the, the team. Uh, and so how do we do that in a coherent manner that even though I can't see you and I can't talk to you, we're still able to continue to maneuver and we don't capitulate when we don't have the tools that we need to or that we're used to? So we've talked a little bit about AI, and very commonly when we talk about AI in the military, we get the idea of, of unmanned vehicles or remote pilot vehicles. Tim, you yourself just came from, you are a, a fighter pilot as well as you've uh, flown RPAs, remotely piloted aircraft, and you were a squadron commander coming out of that. But what I'm hearing more is actually some of the more popular discussions that we talk about AI as it examines big data. Am I hearing that that's going to be more prevalent in terms of the use of technology, or is it a mix, or how do you see this moving forward? AI is, is, gets, gets its effectiveness from big data, right? So they have to work together, essentially. For, a, for AI to develop and to give you useful um, uh, useful knowledge, if you will, uh, it requires big data. So they have to work together. But what was brought up earlier is being able to trust that data to make sure that you're, <clears throat> you have reliable data to, to form knowledge um, from what you got. That, so that, I'll, I'll stop you right there because yeah. we've got a real-world example right now with the 737s that are being grounded. Uh, we've got an autopilot function with a, a, a ground avoidance type system that is taking what are potentially, we think, uh, incorrect sensor data and making the appropriate action for what they think they're seeing on the sensor data, but in, unfortunately, it looks like it's possible that these are the cause of two major accidents. So there's always that issue of garbage in, garbage out, and, and how it, it reacts. What are, what are your thoughts on that? And that will continue to, to be a problem. And, and as a matter of fact, I think that's going to be uh, one, of our, uh, one of our big challenges, of course, is making sure that we, we got that right data coming in. One of the, uh, the, the United Kingdom strategic trends document talked about a scenario where we could no longer rely on the, on the Internet at all. Then what? So, and that comes into some of these timeless leadership traits that we were talking about before, that certain things you're going to have to be able to do no matter what. Um, and, and our leaders of the future, uh, although we'll be immersed in, uh, in technology, will have to understand how to operate without it, right? So, uh, because operating in, in with near-peer competition in denied environments, that is a real threat. So, that's kind of the tension that we deal with is with multi-domain operations is, you know, it sounds really good, but in denied environments, you're going to be, things are going to be very basic. Just communicating in and of itself is going to be difficult over any kind of radio, for example. So uh, those are all things that need to be considered uh, in addition to the data itself, all this, this mass amount of uh, trend data of what the population, what happens to be going on at the time. Um, being able to synthesize that data. So I think a, a kind of a key factor that future leaders are going to be, be have to be able to do is, is say, hey, do, 
does this data make sense or does the information that, that my AI is providing me, does that make sense? Um, maybe I need to ask some follow-up questions and, and to see if that that's really what's happening. Where did you get the data? Is is there any reliability statistics on the data? So absolutely, it's it's uh, if it's garbage in, it's garbage out, and that will certainly be a challenge. But um, we can't ignore it. Um, we have to, you know, there is a lot of a lot of good information out there from from multiple sources, and leveraging that um, is going to be important for the future. The ability to trust AI will be a leadership skill in the future. We spend our whole lives from from being a baby up until now, being able to recognize people's faces, being able to understand if they're lying, what is their emotional state? So much of our communication happens non-verbally, which is somewhat ironic that we're doing a podcast and you can't see what we're actually doing here. But so much of communication is not, not verbal. With AI, if I'm a general, I can look and I can see an officer or, or a soldier and say, hey, I, I can make some conclusion about that person, the badges they, they have, their military bearing, where they went to college. All of those elements help me create a picture, which then helps me filter information I get from that person. If I have a computer system and someone comes and says, this computer system will tell you how to respond, and the computer system says, do this. Why do I trust that? How, how can I trust that? The, the bad information in who wrote the algorithm, um, and we're learning more and more that AI systems are learning things that we don't necessarily want them to learn. Uh, they taught a, a computer system to play the game of Go. It played itself millions and millions of times, and it came up with tactics in the game that masters of the game don't use. So is the system stupid and it's using a poor uh, strategy, or is it smarter than us and it's using a strategy that we have not yet discovered? How will leaders in the future be able to look to an AI system and say, wow, that's a brilliant response, or I don't, I don't trust that response? That's going to be a real challenge. Yeah, so I, you mentioned my experience flying remotely piloted aircraft. I think one of the themes here is, it, and Colonel Gray had alluded to this, these vast quantities of data. Well, what is data? Data, you know, in my mind is ones and zeros, but when you that you trace that ones and zero to a person that created it, it now has context to it. But the challenge in flying unmanned systems, as our army colleagues would call them, is we collect a lot of information. The great part about interpreting and synthesizing information you collect off of platforms you own is you know a lot about the data that you are collecting. So although it's ones and zeros, it has significant greater context to it because we created it to serve a particular purpose. To the general consuming audience of your, your podcasts, open source information, so the general stuff that you can go and find out on the internet, that is, to say the least, disaggregated and unstructured information. Making sense of that is very, very challenging to do and based on some of the tools that our colleagues have talked about, how you do that and then provide decision quality inferences to a leader is really the art. It's in both an art and a science. And I think one of the things that I just as a final point that I would make is one of the things that the War College has taught us as students to do is to be healthy skeptics of the information that you receive at all levels and to be able to apply personal judgment and career experience to 
uh, how you need to apply warfighting capabilities. And I think that that's going to be something that just as we've alluded to here, there are things that we're going to bring into our portfolio of capabilities, but I think there's still going to be a need for senior military leaders to apply judgment to every situation based on what they take in so that we're most effective in how we apply um, our, our nation's resources. Excellent. I think this is probably a good time to break at this point. You've done a great job of defining and describing what 2040 potentially looks like and the challenges we'll be exposed to. In the next episode, we'll take a look at what leadership development ended up looking like in response to those challenges. Chance Gray, Tim Monroe, and Greg Hillebrand, gentlemen, thank you for being in the studio, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thanks for, Thanks for having us. And I'd like to thank all of our listeners out there as well. Please send us your comments on this and other episodes. We're always interested in hearing your suggestions or ideas for future topics. If you haven't already done so, I hope you'll subscribe to A Better Peace on the podcatcher of your choice. And once you do, please rate and review this episode, because that's how more people can hear about us so that we can continue to grow this community for conversations like this one. This conversation is over, but we look forward to welcoming you again. Until next time, from the War Room, I'm Buck Haberichter. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu and have a great day.